0: It's a good thing to be flexible, isn't it, as churches and as people. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm Dave Reimer, and some of you have no idea who I am, and that's okay, because I don't know, have any idea who some of you are either, but uh, we'll hopefully rem- remedy that as time goes on. Pastor Kyle mentioned uh, our time in Hillsborough. Uh, Hillsborough was our first church plant t- uh, 12 years ago now, I believe, this spring. And uh, so we've, uh, I've been filling in there for the last 11 months, and we've come to love and appreciate that congregation. And so this morning is their new pastor's first Sunday preaching there. A.J. Lewis is his name. I'm anxious for you to meet him sometime. Uh, the, the group of churches that are part of kind of our church family we call Synergy Kansas, and we're getting together Tuesday morning. It'll be an opportunity for all these guys to, to meet uh, Pastor A.J., and... Uh, by Tuesday morning, we will be reflecting on something I want you to know about. Tonight, in El Dorado, we're having our um, first public kind of attempt to uh, to begin the steps to planting a church there. I mean, we've been working on it for, for some years, but we're having a community interest meeting. And it's in a, a community center there in El Dorado. And so I'd, I'd like to ask you to be praying about that, that we will find those people whom God is uh, placing in our path and connect with and uh, our our plan, our hope. We believe God is moving in such a way that this fall, early fall, uh, we will begin our services there. Pastor Jay Nicholas, who was on our staff here some years ago, is going to be the planting pastor, and he calls himself the guy until we get the guy. And so he will help things get started, and then we will be looking for someone to take that ministry over long term. So that's an exciting thing, and Tuesday morning as we get together here in our Synergy Pastors meeting, we will have a lot to talk about, I'm sure. Last night, our family, Marilyn and I, and Jeff and Jess and their four children, watched the final episode of a wonderful little show that we have watch consistently um, on public television, are all creatures great and small, and we have just loved it. It's based on the stories that James Harriet told about his days as an English country veterinarian. And in this episode that we watched last night, he, his, uh, and Helen's first child is born. He's in training, pilot training in in uh, the Royal Air Force, and he was able to leave his training for a few days to meet his newborn, and then watching them in that episode hold this precious new life, one day old, brought back a flood of memories, feelings, even fears that we have when that first little life is placed in our hands. You parents, you remember that? Remember that first one? If you're a parent here today, you know what it's like to look at that little one, and to have a dream for that child. What will he or she become? What is God's plan? Now, if you've never had kids, do not I hope you don't sit there thinking, oh boy, this is not for me today, it's not relevant. It is. There's all kinds of stuff for you to connect with that I'm going to be talking about this morning. Um, you know, there's a lot I don't remember about those days. Um, There's a lot I don't remember about yesterday at my age, but I do remember clearly the mix of excitement and even absolute dread that churned in us, Marilyn and I, or at least in me, when we learned that our first baby was finally coming after six years of marriage. And I wondered to myself can I do this? Can I be this? (laughs) Can I be a father? Can I be a good father? I honestly wasn't sure that I had what it took, especially in in emotional terms. Could I help this child become all that God would have him or her to become? And I remember vividly what happened to me when we finally brought Christy, that was our firstborn, home. And that was when we connected. There was a quiet moment when Marilyn was otherwise occupied and, and here was this beautiful little girl lying there on the bed. Absolutely amazing. It was just she and I. And so I I just knelt there and I I looked and looked, you know, you count fingers and toes and all that, and just uh, marveled at the miracle of this new little person and touched her little face and wondered what she would become. I was so filled with gratitude to the Lord and dreams for her. For many of us, when our kids are small... The dreams we have for our kids are kind of small. We're young, we're immature, so we, we hope they'll be musical or artistic or athletic, and in our eyes, they are never normal. They're always above average. And, and often, more kids come along, and then the, the wonder and the amazement is drowned out by all of the, the chaos. Uh, Ray Romano says, having children is like living in a frat house. Nobody sleeps, everything's broken, and there's a lot of throwing up. And that... But even that doesn't kill the dream. And then we get a little older, and our dreams change a little, and we start to think about our kids. I hope they get a good job, or I hope they do well in school. I I hope they move out of the basement. And so a lot of our dreams early on are about what they do, right? And at some point, as they get older and we get older, we start to think, I don't care what they do. I just want a kid that loves me, loves God, tells the truth. And your dreams begin to turn into less what they do than what they are. And probably the greatest joys that parents have as the years go go along are when there's a really good and warm and loving relationship between them and their children. What that also means is that some of the greatest heartache and pain that a parent could have is when there's rejection or anger or distance or failure in their kids. Nobody can hurt you as deeply as your kids can. They're part of you. Your heart's tied up in them. You've invested blood, sweat, and tears in them. I'm sure we could spend hours in this room listening to some of you tell stories of kids who've made bad decisions, they're addicted, they don't talk to you anymore. And I think that most of us would be willing to say, I don't care what school they go to, what job they get, if we have a good and great and loving relationship and we're friends with our adult children, I couldn't care less about all that other stuff. We've, we've had some great times with that same daughter and her husband and son. And after one of those times, Marilyn made the observation on her way home that in many ways, she, her, Christy, her daughter had become her best friend. Shopping together at the Ikea store will do that for you. <laughs> you know, wh- why, why do we have dreams for our kids? It's because we're made in God's image. He has a dream for you if you're his kid, his child through faith in Jesus. And that dream is that each of his children become like his son. Jesus is fully God, so we will never be that. But he is also completely human, and the characteristics of his life and the way he lived and acted are wonderful qualities, and God's dream is to reproduce those qualities in his kids, in his children. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Every up and down, every circumstance in life, every hard time, everything we ever go through, God has sovereignly designed to further shape us to be like his Son. That's the message in Romans chapter 8. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that the whole purpose of the church through all the relationships we have and the gifts that God gives the body. The whole purpose is to help us grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The Apostle Paul writes to his friends in the book of Galatians about being in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, Galatians 4.19. These are the ways God expresses his dream for you. That you develop the qualities of his son Jesus. I hope to help you understand more fully that the central focus of your life, if you're a Christian, is not about what you do, not about what you accomplish, even in ministry, not about what kind of job you have or how many points you score spiritually. God's core vision for you has to do with the kind of person you become and the kind of relationship you have with him. He longs for you to be a loving, kind, gentle, and holy person who walks in integrity. He wants you to have casual conversations with him. Like with a close friend, when you're driving your car or washing the dishes or filling out your report, and when you come to the crossroads of a big decision, he hopes to hear you say something like this, Father, I want to do this your way. Just help me know how to do that. I want to please you. Now, if you look at Christianity around the world, you will discover that we have kind of a situation. First, there is, in fact, an explosion of the gospel in places around the world. Tens of millions of people have come to Christ in the last 50 or 60 years. Some years ago, we went on a trip to China with a group of friends that was led by Jim and Shirley Gearing. Jim is with the Lord now. And they led these groups frequently, and we were privileged to go. And one of the things we learned as we did some reading about China to prepare for this trip one of the things we learned is that experts believe there may be listen to this as many as 30 thousand people coming to Christ every day in China every day and they've acknowledged their sin they've acknowledged the righteous judgment they're under and that Jesus is the eternal son of God who came and through his death and resurrection paid for their sin and they've trusted in him and he he came into their hearts and lives but The late John Stott, the great theologian and author who traveled and taught all over the world, said this about Christianity in this day. He said, Christianity has never had growth like it's had in the last four or five decades, but it's about 16 million miles wide and about a sixteenth of an inch deep. He also said, the greatest need in Christendom today in every country of the world, except where there's persecution or focused discipleship, is spiritual maturity. Depth. All the Gallup and Barna polls that are done among Christians show that about eight out of ten people who claim the name of Christ have very little family resemblance. Spiritual maturity. What is it? It's thinking like Jesus, walking like Jesus, acting like Jesus, loving like Jesus. But we don't have much resemblance to Jesus. And that's why a lot of people outside of Christ look at Christianity and say, if that's what Christianity is, I don't think I want it. The greatest need in the world today is for Christians to live like Christians. And what's exciting to me is that it isn't guesswork. And it isn't about trying harder. Whatever you're doing, just work a little harder at it. Uh, it, It's not about conforming to this list or religious system or written or unwritten rules and regulations. That's our default. We fall into those trying to make some sense out of all. It's not about religion at all. It's about being spiritual in the truest, most biblical sense of the world. But how do you evaluate that? Or how do you measure that? Is it even possible? And I think in many respects it is. And God gives us a very clear picture of what his dream is for your life. And that picture is in Romans chapter 12. I listened to a study years ago many years ago by now, um, on Romans 12, by a pastor named Chip Ingram. Maybe some of you have read his books or listened to him. And he did a study on Romans chapter 12 that made me fall in love with Romans all over again. And and now Romans is my favorite book in the Bible. Chapter 8 is my favorite chapter, but Romans 12 is one of the most concise collections of wisdom for living like Jesus that, that you can find in the Bible. I know I've taken a long time here this morning to get to this point, but I think we needed a little work to get our thinking moving in this direction. Romans 12 tells us a simple truth. God's dream for every child of his is that he or she becomes a disciple, a follower of his son Jesus, if you please, a Romans 12 Christian. It doesn't matter what background or nationality or gender or denomination you've, you have or, or come from, he spells out in Romans 12 what being truly spiritual means. Now, Romans 12 doesn't say everything there is to be said about being a disciple, a Jesus follower. There's a lot more in the Bible. What I am saying is that this is a a pivotal key chapter. It's kind of like an executive summary. It's the snapshot. All the elements of true spirituality are there, and God gave the Apostle Paul, an amazing mind, and he takes all of the teachings of Jesus and in the first 11 chapters of Romans writes about the work of Christ and the sin of mankind and the theology that goes with that, and he summarizes everything that God accomplished and how much he loves his creation. And then in chapter 12, he pulls all that together with this amazing word, therefore, and and tells us what this means, all of this truth means in a Christian's life. Now, if you read Romans 12 with fresh eyes, you'll notice something significant. You'll notice that it is not about trying harder to be religious or spiritual. You can make it into that. And that's the trap that we so easily fall into. Romans 12 is relational. It's all about the basic relationships every one of you has in your life. And I was turned on to this way of reading Romans 12 through that Series uh, study series that I told you about. Jip um, is a fellow Dallas Seminary alum, pastor, author, Bible teacher, and and he talks about becoming an R twelve Christian. And so I'm following some of his thoughts um, through uh, through this study, and I, I want to give you a. A few more thoughts about the first relationship that romans 12 puts on the table that's the one we're going to talk about today but let me give you an overview of the chapter okay and then go home and read romans 12 and you'll see what i'm talking about first the first thing that paul mentions in describing what a what true spirituality is all about is a new kind of relationship with god verse one a new kind of relationship with god this is where true spirituality starts With a relationship not a set of rules and then in verse two he talks about a new kind of relationship with the world there's a world system that opposes god and it's designed to seduce you away from him and his ways and then in verse three he describes a new relationship with yourself god wants you to have an accurate sober self-assessment of who you are and then in verses 4 through 13 there's a new relationship with believers Uh, There's this amazing interaction with other Christians that does wonderful things as we relate together and we use the abilities and the gifts that God gives us, and he talks about how we're all part of one body. And then he concludes the chapter, verses 14 through 21, there's a new kind of relationship with unbelievers, especially those who are outside the faith, who are harsh and mean and difficult and create pain in our life. He begins describing this relationship with non-believers in that section by saying, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. So what I'm saying is that Romans 12 is really a summary, a snapshot of all of the relationships that we have with everyone and everything around us. It helps us understand what God's dream is for us as he shapes each of us in those areas to be more like his son, and those relationships Uh, are the track that Romans chapter 12 takes. Now, not only is it kind of an effective executive summary of what it means to live like a Christian, it's intensely practical, it's measurable. It isn't describing some kind of a, a nebulous, fluffy, spiritual feeling. Okay, so you probably have a right to say, wait a minute, I thought you said that Christian life wasn't about doing, it's about being. And you're right, up to a point. But there are things you do When you're conformed to the image of Christ, you do them not because you have to, but because it's a natural outgrowth of that relationship. Jesus himself did lots of things. Being a truly spiritual person means there are all kinds of things you do. The mistake we make is that we want to begin with doing. That the doing is what we focus on and is the only thing by which we measure ourselves and others. We do that because that's the easiest way. I can look at you and see what you do and don't do and make my judgment. What God dreams for us is that we begin by being, that the relationship is the focus, not the performance. It all begins with the relationship with God. We cultivate the relationship, then all the other things fall into place not because we're following some list of what we have to do, but because we understand God's heart better and the relationship compels the doing. It all becomes natural. Some of you here today are frustrated by your Christian experience. And the reason is that you're trying to achieve a performance standard that isn't rooted in the relationships that this chapter addresses. We don't have the power to do what God wants us to do in the way he wants us to do it. So I'm going to make a guess that many of you, some of you, pretty safe guess, you feel like there's little power in your life. Uh, there's something missing in your Christian experience. It's like you're, you're empty. You're on a big river in a boat, and the outboard runs out of gas, and you've got to paddle, but you're not going to make much progress, and you're mostly drifting. Does that describe your Christian life? I believe the answer to that is here in Romans 12. The apostle gets real practical Real quick. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, verse 1, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We'd probably be more comfortable if he'd written, I appeal to you to present your hearts as a living sacrifice. But this bodies thing pulls it down to earth in a very practical way. Now, let me point out a couple of things. One of God's great blessings to us is that He gave us the Bible, and the New Testament specifically, in a language that is unusually precise for the languages of all time. The Greek language grammar system is amazingly precise in helping us understand how something happens, how an action occurs. And here, especially the verb tense system. Now, if if you are still in... um, uh, at a point of enmity with your English, high school English teacher, then this could be a bad morning for you because I'm going to give you some grammar. But but uh, here Paul uses the word present or offer in such a way that it emphasizes this as something that happens at a point in time. Here it makes clear that on a certain day, at a certain time in a person's spiritual journey, A man or a woman or a student has realized something about God and how wonderful and awesome he is and that his will is good and he or she's bowed the knee literally or figuratively and said to God, okay, I am all in. Everything I am as a physical being and a spiritual being and an emotional and intellectual being is yours. I will do what you want me to do. Your word will be my guide. I want to arrange my life, my priority, my activities, my spiritual... Experience around whatever you say. God made you to know Him in this way, and until you do, nothing in life will ever come together quite right. But when you make this presentation of yourself to God, essentially you're willing to say, God, what do you want the most? Have you ever wondered what God wants the most? He's a person, remember. He's not just some transcendental, impersonal force. If you have a good friend and their birthday's coming up, you ask yourself, what would this person really like? If you're married, you say, I wonder what my spouse would really like. And you do the same for your kids. What does God want the most from us? It's really pretty simple. He wants you. He wants you more than he wants the stuff you do. Of course, there's a place for Bible study and giving and serving and worshiping and praying. But you can do all those things and God still doesn't have you. It's my observation as a pastor that in most Christian lives, this is the missing ingredient. That's why there's no power. When I was a kid, a bunch of us in the neighborhood got into squirt guns one summer, and uh, and that was in that era before there were the, the super soakers and all those wonderfully engineered squirt guns that there are now. We just had the little water pistols that you filled up under the tap and put the little plastic plug in. You remember those? So we'd have water wars in the backyard almost every evening. And then one night, some wise guy got the hose out. And when I came around the corner, I, I got blasted full in the face. And, and so you know what you do in that case? Here's a defense tactic. You, you run past him, and, and uh, you, you go to the hose, and you put a kink in it. And... Uh, doesn't matter how much water pressure there is, there's nothing going to come out. And so what I'm trying to get you to understand is that you can be a legitimate, sincere, born-again believer in Jesus, and if your hose is kinked, if your life isn't open to God's full flow and involvement, you will not experience His power. And so it all becomes moralism and trying harder and being judgmental of those who don't work at it as hard as you do, and it just doesn't work. Is that where you're at? Please, if that is, engage with us as we listen to what God has to say. So becoming a Romans 12 Christian begins in your relationship with God by being surrendered to him in this way that is described here. And this first step is the most important one once you trust Christ and receive him as our Savior. Now, look at what that involves. So let's read verse 1 again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, notice the structure. There's an appeal, there's a motivation, and there's a reason. Here's the appeal. The appeal is to offer your body to God. It's not a beat you over the head kind of thing. It's not a command. He doesn't say, I command you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's Old Testament law. That's the law way. This is the age of grace way, I urge you to present your bodies. Now, don't spiritualize that into incomprehensibility. This isn't metaphorical. This is your physical body he's talking about. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the word present or offer is in a grammatical sense form that suggests that this happens on a certain day at a certain time. It's essentially kind of a one-time event, kind of a baseline starting point for true spirituality. Now, I want to emphasize something here that's really important, and it's a matter of great confusion among many Christians. This is not about how to have your sins forgiven or about how to become a Christian, how to become a part of God's family. The whole book of Romans up to this point has been about how that happens, and Paul's approach is that now that that is true of you, what does that mean in a practical way? Who is he addressing in this chapter? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters. He's talking to Christians. This isn't how you become a Christian. This is taking an intentional step on the road to a level of discipleship that you have not yet come to. Now, I know that for some people, that happens at the moment of salvation. They make that kind of presentation of themselves, but not all of us do. We sometimes describe our becoming a Christian by saying something, well, I gave my life to Christ. I understand that, how people say that, and it bothers me just a little though because I think it distorts biblical truth a little bit. The truth is you couldn't give God anything, not even the promise to always be good and live by his rules, because you were spiritually dead. When you became a born-again Christian, you didn't give your life to Christ. Christ gave his life to you. You had neither the power nor the knowledge to make a full future promise of total obedience. You were dead in your sins, the Bible says. Not comatose, not sick, not weak, but dead. And all you had was the faith. And even that faith God gave you, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, to trust his son Jesus. God supplied it. You exercised it. You did make a choice. God does not give you his salvation as a reward for how good you promised to be once you get it. Because you can't do that. Now, I understand, as I said, that for some, this act of presenting your body as a living sacrifice comes at the same time you trust Christ as your Savior and you receive His life. But now, once you've received His life, that's the moment when God in return asks for yours. It starts with your physical body. And Paul invokes this picture of a sacrifice, like the sacrifices of the Old Testament, How did they do that? The whole animal was given to God and laid on the altar. The power for the Christian life comes in this moment of offering, where through this act you unkink the hose and God's power and blessings come pouring through. There's a significant addition in this sacrifice picture it's a living sacrifice. And one of the problems with living sacrifices is that they crawl back off the altar. But this is essentially a one-time thing. And I need to say, too, that this is not necessarily some big emotional experience like a second blessing kind of thing. It might involve that. But this living sacrifice is more like marriage. In 1967, back down the road here in Whitewater, I said yes to Marilyn, and she said yes to me. And I made a living sacrifice offering to her of myself. And we surrendered at that moment to each other for life. But the problem with the living sacrifice is that it keeps moving. And so I've had to renew that commitment in some way almost every day. You that are married, you know what I'm talking about. And yet, but that moment defined for the rest of my life how I live my life. And it's been the channel of huge blessing since that time. And when you make that sacrifice, God values that sacrifice. You know how much he values it? He calls it holy in verse 1, and he accepts that sacrifice. It's what? Acceptable to him. Here's the motivation. It's not the applause of people or the church. The motivation is the mercies of God, which he showed you when he loved you And he forgave you, and he paid for your sins, and he gave his Holy Spirit to live in you. He took you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He adopted you. He gave you spiritual gifts. He began building your condo in heaven, even though you were his enemy at the moment, the Bible says. That's not mercy. That's major mercy. And since I did that for you, God says, can you trust me with your body, with all of you? This is in light of what I've done for you, especially in taking on myself the judgment you deserve because of my mercy. This is the epitome of kindness and compassion and mercy. That's the motivation. The reason, it's your spiritual worship. It's a way for you to worship him. In other words, God, what God really wants is our worship. And I, I love the musical worship here, but worship is a much bigger thing than music. How do you give God what he wants? What's the best way to acknowledge the holiness and wisdom and love of God, which is what worship really is? Well, the answer is real simple. God wants you, all of you, every aspect of you. This is the core of true spirituality. This is the starting point. I want to remind you uh, that there is a danger here, and the danger is that we, again, begin to think that this is some kind of a moral code that we have to follow so that God will love us or that other people will be impressed. But true spir- biblical spirituality has nothing to do with living a good life so that God will love you. It has everything to do with beginning to grasp the height, the depth, the length, the breadth breadth of how much God has already loved you, has demonstrated that love, and then you living out of the freedom of that love. Paul began this by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters. This is addressed to Christians. It really doesn't apply to you if you're not a Christian here this morning. I recognize that what Paul written may be meaningless to some of you because you're not a true Christian in the biblical sense. You've not yet come into an eternal relationship with God through faith in Jesus. You might be sitting right next to somebody you know well, but you're not their spiritual brother or sister, and so it doesn't apply to you. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be here or aren't welcome here or there's nothing here for you. I want you to hear this stuff because maybe something here will pull at your heart a little and begin to open the doors of your heart. We know people come here who've never come to faith in Jesus, and we're thrilled about that. Uh, We want to help you understand the truth Of God's good news, the gospel, and encourage you to trust Christ for your eternal salvation. And then we challenge the believers to new levels of growth and commitment and understanding and service. This living sacrifice of Romans 12.1 follows that experience of coming to faith in Jesus. It does not accomplish that. And if you're not a Christian, you're still living in the earlier chapters of Romans, in a sense. Romans 1 through 3, Establish that we have all sinned and we all fall short of God's glory, and we are under his righteous, holy judgment. In chapters 4 and 5, there's a solution it's the salvation that Jesus offers. He is fully man, fully God, and he died on the cross and paid with his death your penalty of death. And then he rose from the grave to prove his victory over sin and death, and he offers you the free gift of salvation, and all you need to do and can do is believe it and receive it. Romans 3:22 declares that God offers the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And you receive that gift just as simply as you received a Christmas gift last Christmas from somebody who loved you, you just open your hands, you received it. You reached out and took it because it was offered to you. And that's the way you open your heart to receive Christ. Maybe that's the next step. For somebody in here. And then when you get to Romans 6 through 8, the apostle talks about how this new life is lived. It's not a moral code, try harder kind of thing. He says the spirit of the living God will take up residence in your body and provide you all you need to live out this new life. And then in these mystifying chapters in the middle, 9, 10, and 11, he reminds us how God always keeps his promises, including those to his chosen people, the Jews, even though they fumbled the ball badly in terms of their own responsibilities. And then we come to chapter 12. Regardless of where you've been, how badly you may have dropped the ball, God will keep his promises to you. Um, in light of those incredible mercies that have been The subject of Romans 1 through 11, are you willing to drive a stake in the ground, a nail in the post, make a mark on the doorframe of your lives, and offer yourselves to him in this way? You can do that in your own way and in your own time. Maybe you get down on your knees tonight, just you and God, and you make this presentation. Maybe you and your spouse do that together. Maybe you come here to one of the leaders of the church this morning. You ask them to pray with you as you tell God you're making this commitment. However you do it, along with Paul, I urge you to do it. And this could be the beginning. Write it down. If you do that, write it down somewhere in your Bible or somewhere. This is the beginning, then, of living from the heart instead of from a performance standard. And and listen, when a critical mass of people in one local church have made this sacrifice, that church will have an impact for Christ in its community way beyond what its numbers would suggest. And so this is what can initiate a new kind of relationship with God for you. You know, if you're a Christian, you're fully formed with everything you need. Please don't misunderstand me. It's just like a baby is born That baby is fully formed with everything they need, but they are not yet what they will become. They must grow and mature to be what they were fully formed to be. And what you were fully formed to be is to reflect the life of Jesus, how he thought, how he acted, how he spoke, how he lived out his Father's will. But it will not happen in this life until you make that living sacrifice offering to the God who saved you. Sixty-some years later, for me, I can still remember when I did this. I was 16 years old, and I was at a summer Bible camp in South Dakota that my father was leading, as he did at many. And at, there was kind of a campfire kind of setting. If you've been to these camps, you understand, you know, one of the last nights. And we were challenged to take this step. Some, some people call it rededicating themselves to Christ and, committing themselves anew to Christ and some kind of a living sacrifice thing. And so whatever God wanted of us, we were saying as we walked up to the campfire um, that evening, uh, saying that we were willing to do. And so I joined a small group that stood, and I made that declaration. And then I grew into adulthood, and I followed up on that decision imperfectly and incompletely. And yet it still stood there in my life and memory, reminding me of that commitment. God accepted that sacrifice, just like he will accept yours, as he promised in Romans 12:1. It is holy and acceptable to God. Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable to God. And that mercy that he showed in accepting that sacrifice as adequate and more than enough payment for you and for me is an amazing thing. That should draw, and I'm sure does draw, some kind of a response from us, does it not? Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, you've been incredibly good to us, far beyond our comprehension. and You've laid out a path for us that will result at its end of being fully formed in the person and life and characteristics of Jesus. and. Until then, we walk this journey of sanctification imperfectly, incompletely, and yet there's that point of presentation that pushes us forward reminds us, this isn't just about my performance, this is about loving Jesus, loving you, our Father, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then that will enable us to love each other much more fully, it will enable us to help others come into that grace and mercy of your kingdom and lead them into this life of becoming like Jesus. pray that this will be increasingly true here at Grace Community Church. Thank you for your grace, goodness, and mercy. Thank you for your word which teaches us. And everybody said, Amen.